Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. My name's James Rogers, a war historian, writer and broadcaster who is fascinated by the lessons that we can learn from history. And in this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks with Peter Devitt from the REF Museum. Now they discuss the inspirational stories of individual African-Caribbean personnel who volunteered for the RAF and risked their lives to fight fascism during the Second World War. Dan and Peter reveal the histories of airmen like Flight Lieutenant Cy Grant in 102 Squadron, who was shot down and sent to the Great Escape Camp, or Errol Walton Barrow, a flight navigator in a tightly knit crew with 88th Squadron Bomber Command, but who would go on to become the Prime Minister of Barbados. This is a fascinating podcast, and one that exposes an often overlooked, and in fact all too often neglected history of RAF pilots from the Caribbean who fought and made a vital contribution to the defence of Britain. Thank you very much for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. It's a timely time to talk to you about this subject because we've got the anniversary of the Windrush. We've also got the, earlier this year, we had the uh, huge public outcry and the treatment of of some of the uh, Windrush veterans. What's not often talked about with the Windrush is how many of those people had served in the RAF during the Second World War. Absolutely right. You're looking at, of the 492 passengers that came from the West Indies, about a third are ex-RAF veterans either going back into the service after serving in the war or new recruits or guys coming back from leave. And the thing that that's, that's, it's fascinating to show that because what isn't realised is that between 1944 and 1947 in Whitehall, there was a battle going on between the RAF, the Army and the Navy about the reimposition of the colour bar, which had been lifted in October 1939 under pressure of the expansion of the Air Force or the Army and the Navy. Uh, and casualties, Battle of Britain, Battle of France, Bomber Command casualties. They needed people, so they lifted the colour bar. You had to be pure European stock prior to that. To serve in the RAF to or, ser- or to, to be to the ser- air crew? That's right. Uh, our crew right, right across the board. Okay. Particularly officers, it was felt that no, no uh, white serviceman would follow a, a black or, 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 or mixed heritage officer. So very kindly they lifted the colour bar. And the question was, well, in peacetime, what do we do? And citing reasons of unit cohesion... 
the Army and the Navy said, we prefer to reimpose it formally. And the Irish said, that's, that's unthinkable. The papers are there in, in the, uh, the National Archives for people to go and have a look at. And they fought tooth and nail against it. Now, it wasn't necessarily the case that they were touchy-feely and very liberal. But they looked at the precedent. They looked at the first two contingents that had come, um, the aircrew and the technicians. And they said, we can't return to a thing of saying, saying uh, a policy where you, you are turned down no matter who you are. So if we need to exclude anybody, we can do that. But we cannot go back to it. And they fought tooth and nail against it. They won. 1947, they win policy is they will never go back to a formal reimposition. Um, following year, proof in the pudding, they're recruiting again in the West Indies. And these guys are coming back into a service. Uh, people like Sam King, who became the first mayor of Southwark, just a stone's throw from where we are now. Um, true community leaders. Um, people like Vidal Dizoni, whose son later became a Harrier pilot and a group captain. And um, they were going back into a service that respected them. They liked the service. But you don't know about them. They're invisible. They go down the gangplank while other people are singing calypsos about coming to the mother country. They go back into the RAF. Other things aren't realised about that particular um, boat is that it was met by a chap called Baron Baker, who had been an RAF policeman during the war. And he was working with the colonial office as an advisor. Um, there's, there were kind of, uh, another chap was Johnny Smythe. These are World War II personnel. Johnny Smythe was a, uh, a navigator who was shot down. Uh, he was a POW. And uh, Baron Baker um, found accommodation for those that didn't have it in disused air raid shelters in, uh, in uh, Clapham. Stone's throw from there is Brixton, where people went to find employment, labour exchanges. So that's why you have a black community in Brixton. It's because Bar Baron Baker suggested the Clapham uh, air raid shelters. And it was, there was the notion of helping. In 1958, you've got the, uh, the Notting Hill race riots, as they're called. And what was happening there was that uh, black people were being targeted. Very often the trigger was miscegenation. If you had a white girlfriend... Uh, that was too much for some people who couldn't deal with it. You also got Mosleyites, you got Mosley himself, you've got fascists, you've got teddy boys going to the area and attacking people. The police who were not always hostile by any manner of means, often very protective of the black community, they said, there's nothing we can do. You have to be in by six o'clock and lock your doors. Again, Baron Baker stepped up and there's kind of a curfew. So they met over the, over the, uh, the August bank holiday. They knew there was going to be trouble. Not long before that, a guy had been stabbed to death again. In a, he, had a, he had a white girlfriend and a teddy boy had stabbed him to death. And anyway, um, ex-servicemen were involved in a, what we call an effective neighbourhood watch. Uh, it was uh, a show of the need to protect that community. Um, it worked very well. There was no need for it to be called out again. Um, at the same time, uh, you look at carnival as being started and there's an RAF, uh, direct RAF uh, uh, involvement in that by way of Sam King, which is showing we have been invited to this country, we are British, we are defined as British, which is very apropos at the moment, and we're staying as long as we want. Most thought they'd stay about three years. Um, and here also is carnival. This is what we do. We're not, we're not under pressure. Um, one of the sad things about Baron Baker is he's not particularly well-known in his own community because he was gay. And so you see um, there are different if you like, little pockets where we're looking at diversity in, in all its forms. And we, we say, well, it's, it's interesting to see gay, lesbian, transgender personnel even who have always, who've done things, who've been pioneers, but perhaps have been in the shadows. But without, without Baron Baker, we might not have a black community in, in Brixton. 
it, it is a fascinating time. And these are all, these are all very recent discoveries. Things, these are stories that have fallen out of the archives. Um, it's very stimulating and um, really enjoyable work. So you're, the reason we're talking is because you had a smash hit exhibition in your museum called Pilots of the Caribbean, which I just can't resist repeating. It's such a funny title. So 1939, the color bars lifted. Uh, how, how could people in the Caribbean uh, join the RAF and what jobs are they expected to do within it? Again, um, color bars being lifted uh, formally doesn't mean that you're going to get in. Um, so there were people who would, would try three, four times to get in and be accepted or pay their own passage to come to Britain people like Billy Strachan, um, and I'll come back to him in a second, or join the Royal Canadian Air Force, Canada, freezing cold, but very warm people and, um, and, and very tolerant. So people like Michael Manley, who was the uh, Prime Minister of Jamaica, who um, joined the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, didn't get to see action, but he was very, very proud of that, that, that role. And I'll come back to that, if I may, about what happened after the war with the, the movers and the shakers and the RAF. So um, Billy Strachan. Uh, he can't get into the RAF, so so he sells his trumpet and he pays his own passage to come. He's not the only one to do it. Goes across the U-boat in infested seas, and he arrives at Ad Astral House again, not far from here, in Hoban. He says, "I want to join the Royal Air Force," and the corporal on the door says, "Piss off." And then an officer walks past. Says, "Ah, one of one of our one of our, our colonial friends. Excellent." He said, "Where are you from?" He said, "I'm from Kingston." He said, "Lovely. I'm from Richmond." He explained then, of course, that he meant Kingston, Jamaica, and. Uh, Shortly after that, he's, um, he's training to, for air crew. He does a tour uh, as uh, a navigator, I think, um, bomber command, and then uh, remusters as a pilot and flies with, I think, 96 Squadron, I think it is. So once men like him signed up, for, for, first of all, why did young men like him cross why, the Why indeed? Up? That's the big thing we've asked is motivation. First thing you're saying, if you're any black face you see or Asian face you see in the Royal Air Force is a volunteer. There are no conscripts. Never were, and God willing, there never will be. So anybody that has come has chosen to come to wear the light blue uniform. And you've got the usual things. You'll have uh, a spirit of adventure. Uh, to get away from the, the stultifying atmosphere of a colonised island, perhaps, to see a bit of the world, to get away from family problems. But there are a lot of people who, who thought it through, just as they had in the First World War. They had access to the newsreels, just as we did. They had access to um, the radio. They had access to, to books. They read Mein Kampf. They knew what was in store if Britain lost the war. And whatever Britain had visited on black people in the past, then there's plenty that we can, um, we can actually be quite ashamed of. And there was this notion that that was the mother country. And uh, perhaps it's holding tightly onto nurse for fear of finding something worse or whatever it was. There was also a genuine feeling that, that at its core that Britain was a good, good country and a good place. And the ideals that Britain were fighting for were the ideals that were, were, were theirs as well. So you could have slavery reimposed. This is, this is actually said, uh, it's, it's articulated very, very clearly by a man called John Blair, who won the DFC as a pathfinder. And he joined purely because he said, we didn't think about empire. We didn't think about that. What we knew was, if we didn't all fight together against this thing, we were in serious trouble, all of us. And we could be, just in, in the West Indian part of it, of the world, under threat. Uh, we could find ourselves returned to slavery. So he, he definitely, he, he'd thought it through. A lot of people did. So it's a mixture. But nobody has to come. They're paying, quite a number of them are paying their, their own passages to come to risk their lives for the country that had enslaved their forebears. So the demonised young black man 
young black men who, who get it all the time, young black men, the whole of that exhibition is about young black men choosing to come to the aid of the mother country. They don't have to do it, but they choose to do that. And that's, we found that compelling. So if they made it across the doorstep of Ad Astra House and the corporal hadn't told them to piss off, were they treated like any other new volunteer or, or new recruit? We have, to, we have to say the Royal Air Force uh, is, was surprisingly progressive. Um, again, the exhibition was put together with Black Cultural Archives and the Royal Air Force Museum and the Black Cultural Archives worked together. I worked with a guy called Steve Martin, who's their historian. He's a terrific guy to work with. And he provided, if you like, the... We'd, so we, we're going to give context. You've seen exhibitions before, but this one, we had to start with slavery. How is it that African people are in the, in the Caribbean in the first place? And you look at over 12 million people, people enslaved and exploited, between four and six dying in capture or in the, the Atlantic crossing. You're looking at 3,000 hours of unpaid labour for every person every year. At the end of the 18th century, you've got 7 million people in this country, 1 million enslaved people. I mean, you, these, these things are real. They're really strong, so we put those in. Um, so, again, it makes it really, really interesting that people would come to fight for in defence of, of the mother country. But uh, once, once they're in, the air crew, there's about 450 of those, maybe a few more, uh, 100, 150 of those are killed. Now, the, the population of the Caribbean is only 3 million people, so 150 good men, really good men, come through. We were expecting to have to keep saying... But you must understand in those days that people had never met black people before and people didn't understand. And, and we kept getting people saying, I had a wonderful time. I was treated really well. For the first time, I felt I was part of something and I was wanted. The ground crew were, were larger numbers out of 6,000 volunteers. You're looking 450 air crew out of the 6,000. Their reception varied. Again, not as bad as perhaps the other services, but they did, they did you know, there were some punch-ups. There were some, some ugly moments. It's very difficult, for example, to, to tell if your promotion has been blocked on racial grounds. Try proving that. It's a difficult thing. There were, there were some ugly incidents, but on balance, people got on exceptionally well. And we, again, talking to veterans, they're saying people were nice to us, they were friendly to us. As the war came to an end, the reception began to wear a bit thin because there were memory, memories of unemployment after the First World War, a desire to get back to normalcy, shall we say, where it's been very nice having Polish people and, 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 and Irish people and, and uh, Caribbean people coming to fight for us. We want to get back to what we were. But the RAF didn't really go that way. So slightly different experience for the, for the ground crews. Um, they, they, had a, uh, they, they, were meeting, they were meeting people with less education, perhaps. People who were more outspoken. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But but air crew, you could air crew, yeah. You could be a pilot, you could fly a Spitfire, mm. and you could dine in the officers' mess. Absolutely, there are there, it's nuanced. For example, they didn't encourage black pilots for uh, multi-engined aircraft, for fear that the crew members might have a slight slight reservations about having a black pilot. Is he up to the job? And that might put pressure on the pilot. So it was racist in a sense, but it was done for the best of reasons. But there are some. But you're more likely to be a, a Spitfire pilot. And if I can get back to how it all started, it all starts with, with, a, with a photograph. I remember it very, very well. It's etched in on my mind. It was a Tuesday afternoon, bleak Tuesday afternoon in February 2011. And I'd been asked to give a presentation, or just a chat really, to some youngsters who were described as disadvantaged. And they wouldn't tell us anything about them. I said, aren't they black? They said, yeah. I said, OK. So work the weekend, got some things together. And they came, and they were a little bit older than I expected. They were about 19 or 20, and there were 11 of them, a young, man, young woman and 10 young men. And they'd been around the museum, and they got close to the aircraft. They tried on uniforms and what have you. And so I didn't ask them, you know, what do you know about the RAF? And, you know, they said moustaches and public school boys and things like that. And we got going through, and, and it was having a really good time. It was, it was interactive, they were intelligent, they were asking intelligent questions. And I produced a photograph then of two black Spitfire pilots, Collins Joseph, who was from Trinidad, um, who was killed in 44, and Arthur Weeks from Barbados, and it went silent, absolutely stony silence. And I thought, I've lost them, I don't know what's gone. And then suddenly the, the questions came in, bombarded with questions. Who are they? Are they Americans? Are they red tails? Are they, are they you know? And, um, and I said, no, they're, they're RAF, they're, they're 122 Squadron. It was electric. And all the pious things we say in museums about access and, and ownership and things that we mean, but we actually, they were elective, tangible in front of us with this group. And the mood was, was a curious one, very, very curious. One young man just looked up and he said, I thought we just dug trenches and peeled potatoes. And another one looked me in the eye and was angry. And he said, why haven't I heard this before? That was a good question. Our then director general um, just sort of waved his finger and said, we'll do something. What? I didn't know what we were going to do, but we were going to do something. And it was a very curious thing, because one minute they were happy, next minute, silent. Next minute, 
really, really an electric atmosphere. And I didn't quite know what to make of it. Two, two days later, we found out they were former gang members. Now, if it had hit former gang members as hard as that, it obviously is going to have impact for others. And it was decided we put an exhibition on. Obviously, we, we, we weren't skilled enough in telling uh, the black story to work alone on that. We had to work with Black Cultural Archives, and they were very helpful. And we, um, we also knew we didn't have enough stuff in our archives to tell this story. We had splendid archives, wonderful collections. I mean, we've got a transformation going on for the centenary. It's going to be an absolutely wonderful place to come uh, when we open at the end of June. But we knew at that point we didn't have enough, so we appealed to the public, and it was brilliant. Uh, a lot of people responded to the fact that there was a national museum that had the humility and the strength to ask for help. Because could, we could have gone, got our own way and got it wrong, but we didn't. We asked for help. And we received, received artefacts, letters, diaries. And we received a lot of guidance and contacts, but the biggest thing we received was goodwill. This is the backdrop to the, the exhibition, and it is still running. This is the latest thing, which is going on. It, it, it was open on the 1st of November 2013. Pushing on for five years later, people are still talking about it, and it's wonderful. It was goodwill. Um, we got from all age groups, black, white, all classes, who all had some reason for wanting this thing to succeed. And I remember there was a, I was, I was down at the exhibition not long after it had opened, and I was talking to somebody, and a small elderly gentleman with uh, a white beard and this ferocious look in his on his face stumped up to me. I thought, I wonder what this is going to be. And he thrust his hand out, shook mine and said, about bloody time. And I was expecting, stereotypically, I was going to get a telling off about immigration or some such thing. And I was ready for that. Not a bit of it. And I kept running into people. Again, the whole thing about stereotypes. So whether it be the fact that there was a South African fighter race called Salem Milan, who's a terrific Battle of Britain fighter pilot, a leader of men, natural leader, who led an anti-apartheid movement called the Torch Commando in South Africa against apartheid. They didn't win, but large numbers, very large numbers, thousands of white South African ex-servicemen opposed to apartheid. That was one of the things that came out of the exhibition. Another thing that came out of the exhibition was that there were people, those that had survived, went back and they became teachers, they became journalists, they became lawyers, prime ministers. People who were totally opposed to colonialism who were insistent on the British leaving, who at the same time remained fiercely loyal to the Royal Air Force. That there was something that the RAF embodied something, an almost, I suppose, a distillation of all things, that's, all things that were great about this country. Uh, there's a guy called Errol Barrow. He's a socialist, he was a radical, he was the first prime minister of an independent Barbados. And um, when he died, in his, he's only 60-something, he kicked and screamed against colonialism. He was a thorn in the side to the American State Department. Sent a rocket when Grenada was, invent was invaded. But when he died, his, his headstone read as, as, as follows. In memory of Flying Officer Errol Walton Barrow, Navigator RAF, World War II, and Prime Minister of Barbados. So he had no love of empire, but he had a very, very profound love of the Royal Air Force and, and what, it, what it had done. And there seems to be something about the RAF. And we've, we've been discovering this when we've been looking at the RAF and saying, well, what is it? What's special about it? It has, doesn't seem to have any negative associations. People are very, very proud of the, an association with it. You mention it, somebody tells you a story about somebody they knew 
or a relative or the, they themselves and how proud they are to be part of that. Black people, no different. I mentioned the wind, Windrush. True community leaders who were defending the community, changing the profile, making sure that people were represented well. But all of these stories were quiet. They were dormant, but they were there. And they fell out of the research. It was all put together very, very quickly in the summer and autumn of 2013. But we kept getting these people, you know, people like Cy Grant. And Cy Grant has only, only been discovered now. And he was uh, he's a navigator on 103 Squadron. He got shot down on his third op and went into Stalaglas III, the great escape camp. Uh, he was able to confirm, incidentally, that the CEO, uh, the, the commandant there was a good man, as is shown in the, the film. Great Escape, as an aside, is a really accurate film within The Wire. Outside, it breaks down a bit with Steve McQueen on his motorcycle, but it's a fantastic film. But within The Wire, it's based uh, on the memoirs and, indeed, the, inter- the intervention of veterans. There's a lot of veterans on that film. And he was able to say, no, he was a good man. He met him at the gate, and he had two guards with him. And he said, um, I've heard about you. He said, where are you from? He said, I'm from British Guyana. Guyana now, as it is. He said, lovely, I've been there. And he turned to the two guards on either side and said, you make sure you look after this officer. He said the only man he had a problem with was actually a Texan who couldn't get his head around the fact that there was a black officer. But it, talking about that again, he said, um, it was my, that, was, that was my university. I learned so much. So people, very, very gifted people, all brought together, hadn't enough to do really. So you could dedicate yourself to trying to escape or you might educate yourself. He, had, he said it was like a degree course there. He is now being discovered as he's a hugely important, a, a real unsung hero. He's got a blue plaque only last November. But he was doing um, extraordinary things in the arts uh, and in politics in this country that people didn't, just, just haven't remembered. Uh, always his own man. And that's, I think, partly the reason. He, only, only, he said what he thought, no matter who it was to. But again, his pride in the RAF. As somebody who was a black power activist, I mean, he really believed in it. Uh, he said, I was a very, very angry black man in the 1970s. But he was also a very proud Royal Air Force veteran. And his wife, Dorrit, who is still with us, lovely lady, and she said, every year he would go down to the cenotaph, didn't march, had his medals in his pocket, he would see the procession, and then he'd come home again. He didn't talk about it. Now, if you, if you follow Cy Grant's career, you're looking at a black activist. We gave, we gave a subriquet to each of 11 standalone biographies and he was philosopher again nobody knew that story one of our favorite people is flight lieutenant trevor edwards he's from the council estate in woolwich went to the local grammar school went into the royal air force regiment he then transferred to to air crew which is a lovely story i don't know if you've got time for it here about how he ended up going to air crew ended up flying came out of the top of his tactical group and ended up being uh, selected as a fighter pilot flew jaguars a serious alpha male, but the nicest guy you'd ever meet and great sense of humour. And very amused, it's any about his role as a, uh, as a role model. But he's BA captain now. And um, four weeks ago, we, there was a programme on The One Show where Trevor discovered the story of William Robinson Clark, that first flying corps pilot of 1917, who gets his wings in 1917, who we found in our archive completely by accident. Uh, a new member of staff by the name of Ruben Messiah, who works in our education department, and a little film was made, about four and a half minutes, that has had an awful lot of impact, where Trevor is shown the documents that relate to Robbie Clark in his service in 1917. He was flying RE-8 biplanes over the, the Western Front on reconnaissance operations. He got a bullet through the spine, managed to get his aircraft back safely, survived, and then went back to Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. Didn't talk about it to anyone. I think he was known in the local... Local boy makes good in 1919 when he went back. 
but he didn't didn't talk about it. And so so when people were volunteering in the Second World War, they didn't have, as they did in India, there were maybe four or five pilots of Asian heritage, and people could point to them, but he didn't talk about it. And there was, um, I suppose, there were three three role models because in Reuben you've got a, a young lad who's who's now working in a, a military museum, and, and and going great guns, and it's it's lovely to work with him. You've got Trevor there, who's come from a, a working a tough working class area, and they're talking about a guy who was a role model a hundred years ago. There's something new every day, and it might be that we've got new information about the Polish contribution or the Czech or a colleague of mine is Belgian. He sits next to me and, and he has some wonderful Belgian stories about the guys flying in the RAF. I had a, a, a wonderful experience in the end of 2017 where I was invited to the unveiling of a memorial to 132 Norwegian wing in Grimberg and in, in Belgium. Uh, 132 uh, was the two um, Norwegian Spitfire squadrons, which were fantastic, really efficient. And there were uh, the Dutch squadron and two British or two two RAF squadrons. It's one of the most efficient, most effective RAF wings there ever was. Nobody knows anything about them. When I went to this gathering, there were people from all over the world. There were Australians, there were Dutch, there were Norwegians and Danes, Irish, all together. And they're all speaking the different languages. As I was listening there, having some lovely Grimberg and beer, I could hear the same words, prang, Tora for strip. All this international, this international gathering, all speaking RAF slang, and the affection they had for this. For the, and very, very often, the RAF instinct was the only home these young men had, young men and women, I should say. They'd gone back. Sometimes when they went back, they weren't particularly welcome. Oh, you've had an easy war. We had the Gestapo. And it's true, they did. But, you know, there were Australian guys on Bomber Command here who got white feathers from home because they weren't fighting the, the, the Japanese in New Guinea, defending the homeland. Now, that's a point of view, but it wasn't an easy war, as, as you know. So people are never happy. You go back, you look, go back looking good in your uniform with your medals up, looking a million dollars. Um, not everyone's going to respond well, but the RAF was always there. And they took people in. One thing we've discovered is it is a family, a genuine family. There's a wonderful woman called Corporal Sony Campbell. She's of Caribbean heritage, but uh, born and bred in the, uh, in the Midlands. And he said, well, we'd love you in our centenary exhibition. And she was helping um, with operations in Syria. So she's based in Cyprus. And she said, OK, but I'm not wearing camos again. I'm not a soldier. And this was really inconvenient for us because we already had a picture of her we'd used before. She said, no, I don't want to be in your exhibition again if I'm not wearing best blue. I'm RAF. I'm not a soldier. She would rather not appear again. That sums it up. Absolutely. And that's that love of that service. And it's, it's something that we are, I think, we're delighted by, but very surprised by. Well, you've surprised everyone with the success of this exhibition. And so thank you for coming on the podcast, surprising us these wonderful stories. And uh, I urge everyone to go to uh, Hendon, especially because the museum will be reopening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.